Thank you. I was glad for that few extra minutes to collect myself after worship. <laughs> My goodness. I'm all like twitchy now. <laughs> I don't know if it's adrenaline or Holy Spirit or Holy Spirit adrenaline or what, but <sighs> there, I don't even know what to do anymore now. There was such fierce pursuit tonight in worship. And I just kept getting this picture of like, I mean, it was so like cinematic, <laughs> but it was, I mean, it was like Jesus and he was in this middle of this darkness and he was just this light and there was just this darkness encroaching on him, but it was just, it was sort of like this kind of begging the darkness on. It's like, is this all that you have? And he was just so ferociously pursuing and I wanted to pray and intercede, and I just felt like, what's the point? <laughs> He's like, I am coming in my strength yeah. and in my power to redeem you. Yeah. And I felt such a national burden, and it was just like he was saying, watch me. Yeah. I want you to partner with me, but it was just this kind of a moment of like, just watch what I'm going to do in the middle of this, this darkness, in the middle of this chaos. All of these songs that were being sung in worship tonight were just filled with like these pictures and these images of chaos and darkness and storms and stuff around, but these messages of the Redeemer who is coming. And I know that all of that stuff has a personal application in our life. Because what God wants to do in this nation, he wants to do in you. Yeah. And what he does in you, he does through you into the nation. Right. But I just want to, I'm going to have to figure this out. <laughs> he is coming in his sovereign move for our nation. He is coming in his strength and in his courage and in his fierceness. And there are people that are standing around partnering with the darkness that are the loudest right now. And there are very loud, very scary, very stormy voices out there. And there is very real chaos, very real darkness, very real wars and rumors of wars that are coming at us. And if you stopped and you looked and you read, if you're one of the people that tortures yourself and you read the news, then you understand what I'm talking about. But I just want to tell you that I just feel such fierceness on the heart of the Father that he is coming for our nation yeah, and that he is coming in his sovereign yeah. might yeah. and that it has been generations of people that have said yes. They have aligned themselves, the church, the praying people on every side of the political aisle, but the praying interceding church has said yes. And they said yes about five years ago. And they said, I will be positioned and I will take up my spot. And I just feel like now the king of glory is coming into our nation with his sovereignty, riding in to destroy the works of the enemy. And if you don't believe that, I declare tonight, by the end of this time, you will. Because I don't want you to take my word for it. There is a power and a voice from heaven that will deposit that inside of you. And that you do not have to live another day of your life 
terrified about the direction of your family, your city, your nation, or this world. You don't have to live terrified. And that's not to deny the reality that there is real stuff going on. Sin, darkness, wickedness, forces of evil, bad choices, bad theology, bad politics, bad policy. All of that stuff is real. But there's no mountain that he won't kick down, no wall he won't, whatever that stuff is. <laughs> there's no mountain he won't kick down. We have to climb mountains, he just kicks them over. Some of the stuff that I think stands in the way of us receiving that, um, I'm going to pray into that here at the end. Um, but there's some things I think that stand in the way of us receiving that. Um, and uh, last time I was here a couple of weeks ago, I talked a little bit about some of those things. And I just want to give a quick little recap because I want to pick it up uh, from that place last week or a couple weeks ago when I was teaching um, and sort of unpack that a little bit more because I, I mean, this is, this is, this is me in my life, so I'm just going to preach from where I am in my life. And maybe this isn't where you guys are, uh, but I'll draw you into my little world here tonight. Um, I am very, very focused. The Lord's got me very focused right now on what he's doing in our nation, specifically inside of um, the, the mountains of media and politics and entertainment and the things that he's doing and speaking and what is coming um, for those places. Uh, oh, I just wish I was more composed. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, so he, he, <laughs> he's got me on that stuff right now. And, um, you know, if, you don't, if, you're, not, if you're not concerned with that stuff um, or, or, you know, in that area right now, then that's really great. Um, and I don't want to force you into that. Uh, but I think a lot of people are uh, pretty concerned and pretty focused on what's going on, specifically in our nation, and specifically as the messages from the media and from other areas are going out that seem to be so contradictory and in dramatic conflict with the messages of the kingdom of heaven. And that there is a very real conflict going on in our nation. And it has been going on for quite some time. But what happened in the last 18 to 24 months is that uh, events blew everything up. There were events that happened in our nation. There's a variety of events uh, that just blew up the, uh, the willful ignorance that people lived in, that there wasn't a major conflict brewing. And I don't believe that this conflict that's brewing is a, is a physical and a violent one. I believe the conflict that's been brewing is inside of people. Because what goes on inside of you eventually will spill out outside of you. And if all you're looking at is all the stuff that's being spilled out around you, you're never going to deal with what's inside. Does that make sense? So we're going to deal with what's inside of us. Because the chaos and the fear and any, any issue, um, event, thing that you can point to and say, that scares me? Well, you're part of the problem. I need to develop that. <laughs> and that may not be specifically true in every instance, but it gets to the point where I want us to ask the question, so I see scary stuff in the world, how am I opening up myself 
to either hear from heaven or be entrenched in my own ideology that separates me out and continues to, to draw these lines of, of division and separation in the world. That will make more sense in a few minutes after I teach on it a little bit. So last time I talked, I talked about something that I called um, a redemptive trilateral culture. Uh, and uh, I kind of fleshed this stuff out. I'm not gonna reteach that because it took about an hour. Um, but redemptive, redemption is the practiced art of forgiveness. And forgiveness is, is, is not forgetting what someone has done. Sometimes you do need to forget, but forgiveness just doesn't mean, oh, that never happened. Like removing statues from our public squares in an effort to, to, to forget that things that never happened. Not that I'm weighing in politically on whether that's a good or bad choice. Um, but there is a, there is a, there is a, um, a motivation to forget the things that have come because it's too painful. And if it's painful, then we need to put it out of sight, out of mind, right? But if, if something's painful and you put it out of sight, out of mind, it doesn't get healed. And it isn't until we face the fact, like Romans 4 says, with Abraham, the father of our faith, that Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was as good as dead. He faced the fact that he didn't have it inside of him and the circumstances around him were not conducive to what God said to him. But the scriptures say in Romans 4 that he faced that fact and against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and that was credited to him as righteousness. If you want to be in right alignment with God, face the fact that you don't have it and the world doesn't have it. He's got to do something about it. And so redemption is the practiced art of, of forgiving people. And forgiveness is, is, can be displayed when you resist the temptation to define someone by their mistakes. Forgiveness can be displayed when you resist the temptation to define a person by their mistakes. Not to say that I didn't see that it happened, but I'm not going to define you by it. So if someone, someone commits a lie, if someone lies, are they a liar? Or are they someone who lied? Right? And that's redemption. And then there's these three other sides, uh, trilaterals, three, three-sided, that there's three things, honor, wisdom, and hope, that I feel like the Lord is teaching me and that he wants to teach us about how to come out from this divided, short-sighted worldview in our own lives that that I either have to agree with you or I have to separate myself out. And um, I believe that the Lord is asking us not to just seek agreement, but to pursue understanding. And I've talked a lot about this, and it's been a pretty strong message the last couple of years for me, but that I believe God is more interested in how we think about what we think than in the particulars of those things that we think. He's more interested in the process by which you arrive at conclusions than he is in the actual conclusion that you arrive at. That's not to say that he doesn't care about what you think. Let me talk about it this way. Let's say um, that, you, that you arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that you need to put your trust in him. Is that a good conclusion? Yes. yes. This is a softball, y'all. It's an easy one. 
That's a good conclusion. But what if you arrived at that conclusion because you thought that God was going to punish you and that he was very unhappy with you until you made a good decision finally in your life and accepted his son? Maybe you will get to heaven. I think probably so. But you're going to spend, you arrived at the how by means of not really getting at the character and the heart and the nature of the Father. And so it's not just what you think, it's why you think what you think. Why do you think Jesus is the way to heaven? Because I don't want to go to hell and I'm afraid to die. If that's it, you're missing a big part of the kingdom. And we need to talk about how we're thinking and coming to discover. And that process is often difficult, particularly in the discourse of culture today, because most people are concerned with what it is that you're thinking. Like on the campaign trail, people had to disavow. If somebody came out in support of a candidate, they had to disavow that support. Otherwise, you were complicit in that other person's worldview, right? I mean, do you guys remember any of this stuff? And that's why people are constantly in the public sphere hedging themselves, saying, oh, I don't want to be associated with this person or, you know, because then they're going to think that I'm also doing this with these other people. And, and there's wisdom in all of this, guys. There's so many layers of things that I'm not going to be able to touch and qualifiers. But I'm trying to get at the point where we don't have to just agree with people to be in relationship with them. Yeah. And that there's stuff going on inside of that temptation that I think keeps us in bondage. Um, and recently I've been, I've been doing an exercise that's been kind of challenging and fun for me. It's been fun, but challenging. I've been, I've been participating in an exercise where, um, where I'm having a weekly discussion with a public weekly discussion with someone who thinks very, very differently than I do about the world, um, about politics, about God, um, about pretty much every topic. Uh, and we've been having this public weekly discussion on Facebook. And it is an exercise for me in trying to understand another perspective in the middle of a bunch of stuff that I'm like, oh, that's just not true. <laughs> I'm like trying to get out Wikipedia and fact check as fast as I can, you know. And, I, and I've, I've wrestled my whole life with wanting, you know, to make sure things are true and right. Truth and right were pretty much intertwined. They're not the same. Uh, but for me, they have been. And so I've been doing this in an ongoing way on Thursday nights and then posting it on my website, uh, these discussions with a thinker. Um, and it's been an, an exercise in understanding their perspective and also another exercise in understanding my own perspective. Like I'm pretty introspective, but this has been a, a pretty serious challenge. Um, but it's kind of left me with this question of, okay, I want to pursue understanding, not just agreeing. But when I understand, how do I, in the middle of that, not get swept away in my convictions? And how do I not let these other things pull me away from the truth? Yeah. Like, I want to understand someone. But when you... Has anybody, has anybody talked to someone who has a very different viewpoint than you about something that's important to you? Yeah. I see a few hands, yeah. right? It's difficult, yeah. right? And underneath that, latent underneath that, there's some anxiety that seems to stir up because you, sometimes I'm thinking, well, what if, what if I'm actually wrong? Or maybe I know I'm not wrong, but what happens if I start spending so much time with these people? Like, 
I'll start getting corrupted. I'll start getting led astray uh, by these other ideas and these other thoughts. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit tonight uh, about that, about how do we engage in conversations and relationships with people who think very differently from an honoring perspective and not lose our convictions, but stay open to this dialogue. Because like I said earlier, it's much more important how you talk about a topic than what you necessarily think about it. Unless you're like a policymaker or elected official or public person, like the what you think is very important. But for most people, that you engage with, I think probably 99% of us in this room, people in you know, two hours from now or two years from now, they're not gonna remember what you said, they're gonna remember how they felt when they talked to you. Right. Yeah. They're gonna remember the way that you treated them. Mm-hmm. And I believe y'all that we have got to learn how um, to open up our hearts and engage with people in this capacity. So if y'all have your Bibles, you want to turn out to Matthew 17. I want to talk about this um, a little bit from this verse. Um, Matthew 17. The immediate passage before this is Jesus. He's up on the mountain of transfiguration, and he's glowing, shiny Jesus style. And the Lord comes and puts his presence on him, and the disciples come down, and then they immediately come down off this mountain into the Galilee, and they have this experience. I just want to read this verse, the scripture to you, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Matthew 17, verse 14. It says this, And when they, the disciples, John and and Peter, I think, some other people, you can read verse 1, And they came down to the crowd, A man came kneeling up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy upon my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. We like that last part. We sang a lot about it tonight moving the mountains. But I want to unpack this a little bit because there was, this, there was this experience that the disciples had of trying to do something and then they couldn't do it. And then publicly, I don't know, if I was a disciple, I may have a little bit of pride and like my hand laying on ability. Like I tried it and couldn't do it and got to, you know, go up the pay grade, you know, get them up to the front to the, to the professional leader so they can pray for them because um, your work didn't get it cut. I mean, that's kind of how I read this uh, for much of my life um, and felt a little bit of shame surrounding that. But I don't imagine that's really what Jesus was doing and thinking. But so the situation is that a man has a son and he's got this thing that grips him. And the epilepsy is sort of this picture of, look, this is not something that this, that this boy is doing. These are not decisions that the child is making. These are not patterns of sin or things. It's like something that has gripped the child. 
okay, and is holding on to him, and he falls into the fire, and he falls into the water, which are very interesting pictures that we could unpack. Um, but he says he brings him to Jesus, and then Jesus answers this guy and says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how, am I lo how long am I to be with you? I want to unpack some of these words here because, uh, you know, this, this kind of seems a little bit harsh, right? I mean, Jesus, instead of saying, oh, yeah, I have compassion on you, sure, I'll pray, bring the little children, the kingdom belongs to those like this. He says, you faithless and twisted generation, right? And there's a lot that can be said about that, but the faithless is uh, the, the Greek word for faith. It's just a negation of the faith. It's not faith. Like I didn't, you faithless means that you didn't have or weren't acting in that faith. And he says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And that word bear means to hold up. So here's this question, and it's connected to faith. Jesus says, without your faith right now, I can bear you up. Jesus is saying to the disciples and the people watching, look, generation of people, without faith, I'm here in the flesh and I can hold you up right now. But how long am I going to hold you up? Because he wasn't going to be there for much longer. Because we know that because immediately after this, he gets done with this. And in verse 22, he looks at his disciples and he says, immediately after this scenario, he says, verse 22, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So he poses this question in the middle of this desire for healing. He says, I'm with you right now and I can hold you up because my presence is incarnate on the flesh in front of you. But if you are not bearing yourself in faith, how long am I going to be doing it for you? And then he looks at them and he does something. He says, bring him to me. And verse 18 says this, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Now, <clears throat> this is one of those moments when I'm glad that I have the internet because um, I went and looked at the Greek and this is very helpful. Uh, this is a moment where our translators give for us an interpretation of the scriptures. But the text itself is, and Jesus rebuked him and it came out of him, and the boy and the demon came out of him. That's the Greek. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. Here's the difference. The scriptures doesn't say that Jesus rebuked the demon. He says that he rebuked him, and then the demon came out of him. Slight little difference here, but I want to tell you um, why I think that's significant. I looked up the word rebuke, because normally I think rebuke is like hellfire, damnation, standing on the corner with a, with a sign, um, you know, declaring, you know, turn or burn kind of thing. But the word rebuke, the primary mentions, the primary meaning of that word is to honor, to lift up or ascribe value to, to raise up. And then a whole list of secondary sort of, you know, more traditional rebuke. Think about that for a minute. Was Jesus giving honor to a demon and lifting up, increasing the value of the demon in someone's life? No. No, what was he doing? Is this a rebuke? And it's, this is like kind of blown my mind a little bit for the rebuke of God. So 
The father brings the child to Jesus, and then the the father, and Jesus looks at him and says, look, you're not activated in your faith right now. I'm here in the flesh, and I can hold you up. I'm about to do this. I can hold you up, but I'm not going to be here forever to hold you up. And then he elevated and ascribed honor to him. It could have been the boy. It could have been the father. It could have been the disciples. What was Jesus rebuking, honoring, raising up in that moment? I think it probably was the father. Here's an example of a rebuke uh, from earlier in Matthew. We know this in the Sermon on the Mount, the discourse on the hill, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You've heard it said um, that um, if anyone commits adultery, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you the truth. If you even look at a woman with lust in your heart or in your eye, you have committed adultery. What is Jesus doing there? Well, he's rebuking. What's he rebuking? He's lifting up and honoring God's and the kingdom's vision of sexuality. And he says, look, it's not just about the thing that you do. If you don't understand the beauty of what God has created on the earth, if you don't understand the full value of heaven on the earth, then you're never going to be able to live the life that you're supposed to live. So when Jesus wants to cast out a demon, sometimes he speaks directly to the demon, but in this situation, he lifts up your heart and your mind so that you understand the great value of the kingdom of heaven. And the scriptures say that instantly the demon left. So we've got stuff that's going on in our lives that we've been doing the sin management thing, trying to get rid of the sin. But what God is wanting to do is to lift you up to the value of heaven's place in your life. Like when we begin to agree with what heaven says about who we are and who the world is, the demons flee. And we don't have to stand in every moment declaring, I cast you out, get rid. I think there's probably value in that. There's people who are much better at that spiritual warfare prayer stuff than me. But there is a truth in heaven that unless you agree with what God says about you, and unless you agree with the value that he puts on this nation, the demons in this place will continue to be here. And the disciples come and they say, why couldn't we do this? And he says, oh, It's because of the littleness of your little faith. You had these ideas. It was this littleness. And it wasn't about quantity. It was about activity, about the action of your faith. Because then he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed. That word have is the Greek word echo, and it's a verb. It's an action word. He says, you are thinking trying to get something done, but you've got to actually use and believe with the faith that I put in you to speak. What do you speak? The truth of what the kingdom says about this nation or the problem or your body or your family, right? And I'm sure that we've heard many messages about the power of declarations and the power of prayer and the power of speaking out the truth of heaven. But the power doesn't exist because we utter the words. The power exists because we agree with who God is and what he says. And I believe that we, we can push back the darkness, not by declaring that the darkness is evil and giving honor to the darkness, but by agreeing with what God says and learning how to to receive the rebuke from heaven. And this is hard. 
Who likes to be rebuked? <laughs> Who likes to have God come into your life and raise up his value about what he says so that the stuff in your life just goes away because all of a sudden you agree with heaven? Yeah. I, okay, who likes rebuking? <laughs> who wants to receive a heart from God about what he says in any situation so that that situation, whether it immediately changes like the boy here with the demon that left or whether it changes immediately in your mind and you've got to wait for the, for the earth to catch up with heaven. But this is what God is wanting to do. And we have such an invitation right now because there's so many epileptic seizures that are throwing us into the fire in the water right now. And everywhere you look, you can see people flailing around. And they've been like this their whole lives, it seems like. So much so, what's so damaging about knowing that it's been like this your whole life? It's that you have no other belief or idea that it could be another way. And sometimes it's just alighting on the hope against all hope that there is another way. That there is a path forward, even if you don't know what it is. Even if you have no idea what God is doing, you know that there's a way forward. And so the disciples come and they ask him why. And he begins to teach them not just about thinking the right things, but activating the faith that's inside of them. And I think that while we go out into the world quote-unquote, the world, the scary shark-infested waters of other people's opinions and bad theology and views that are different than ours. As we move out into that place, we have got to be grounded in what God says about them and what he says about you and what he says about the world. And to the degree that you step out into that and you start feeling anxious and you start feeling, I know James called it double-mindedness, you start like, well, am I right or am I not right or does God really love them? And you start getting concerned to the degree that you step out into the world and you're uncertain about that. I think that that exposes for us a place of rebuke. Does that make sense? Like here's an opportunity in your life to have God shape your mind and your heart so that you agree with what heaven says. What happens when you have your heart and mind shaped when you agree with what heaven says about the world and around you? Well, you say to the mountain, be removed. And the mountain is removed. It's not a party trick. It's not witchcraft. It's not magic. It's God doing what he said he was going to do and doing it in you and through you out into the world. But we've got to fight for that sometimes. And to practice. Because, I'm going to skip that part. That was so good on my walk earlier today, but that's not for now. Tonight, in worship, God was enthroned in our praises. And I've heard that as a worshiper and a worship leader. I've loved that passage. Psalm 22, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it to you now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's that from? Yeah, the cross, right? 
Psalm 22 is deeply prophetic about, about Jesus. David gets a revelation of that. It starts out with this, but get the context of one through three because verse four is key. Verse three is key in the context. My God, my God, verse one of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Does that sound like a faithful thing? You know, you wouldn't immediately think so, but it's very faith-filled. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In, your fa- in you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. So the context of God is enthroned on the praises of his people, or enthroned on the praises of Israel, is deep questions and yearning of David saying, I am forsaken. Jesus echoing those words on the cross, I am forsaken. Was that an accusation of the Father? Or was it just a heart that said, ah, I'm hurting. I don't understand the darkness in the world. I don't understand why you think this way. I don't understand why you can act this way. I don't understand that. But that word enthroned on the praises of his people. I want to talk about that. That word enthroned is a Hebrew word. It means to sit down or to dwell to specifically sit down in a place of authority as if a judge. So we have this idea inside of Scripture, and it turns into the Greek word, a word kathidzo, that gets used a number of times. But enthroned is this picture of a governing leader, like a president or a judge, sitting down in their place of power and declaring the truth, speaking out the truth. So it would be like the president of the U.S., speaking out from behind the Oval Office from a place of power and authority, from a seat, a literal seat of power. Can you all picture this? We haven't done that in a while. It's kind of the president sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office declaring, he's enthroned declaring. That is a little bit different than tweeting something out at 3 a.m., right? It's still the same person speaking maybe the same words, but when they sit in a place of power and authority, it carries a different kind of weight, Okay, that's enthroned. Okay, and it says that God is enthroned in a place of power and authority to speak out the truth of heaven and make it actually happen. God is enthroned on the praises of his people. Now, praises, there's seven different Hebrew words for praise. It's a really fun study. If you haven't done that study, you can Google it. Um, uh, who's that crazy guy out at Bethel that does a bunch of the seven praises? Um, He's like a musician guy. Uh, Ray Hughes, yeah. Ray Hughes has got some really great stuff on this. But this word praise is the, is the word tehila. And the word tehila is to sing a new song or an unrehearsed song. Okay? And so let's put this together here now. Is that God gets enthroned not on our policies or our principles, but on our praises. Okay? If you want God to come in and receive heavenly wisdom and insight, authoritative insight, so that what is actually true happens, if you want the kind of authority that comes from God, that enthroning doesn't happen on your principles or about your policies or your thoughts or your ideas. It happens in your praise. And it happens in the kind of praise that's unrehearsed, that it's a new song. I think there's definitely a case to be made in scriptures that that new song can be talked about as praying in the spirit as well, where our mind is unfruitful, but our spirit prophesies. 
1 Corinthians 14, 15 and 16. All right, so think about this now. If you want God's power and to understand, to have the rebuke of heaven so that God elevates in your life what the kingdom of heaven says, if you want that to be enthroned in your own life, he's going to do it through something that bypasses your cognitive rational abilities sometimes. He's going to do it through an unrehearsed praise. Not the stuff that you learned years ago, not the things that you grew up in a conservative homeschooled environment and you got learned the principles of God, which are very good and very important, but sometimes you've got to stop and connect your heart to the Father and hear what he's saying right now, and that's where the enthroning authority comes. Now, God's now word never contradicts his written word, and it always introduces us to the living word, right? We're mature enough to know that cycle. But this is the invitation that we learn how to receive what God is saying now and not just try and enthrone God on our principles or our policies. There's a very big difference, and I've stood on this soapbox a little bit, and I'm going to do it for like three minutes um, again. There's a very big difference between the principles of God and the presence of God. The principles of God will take us to some places that only the presence of God will keep us, right? Principles are ideas and concepts, and they're very good. By definition, a principle is something that you know, and you don't have to think or consult anybody. You know it's true, and you can just apply a principle without really being in relationship with somebody. It's like a law. If a judge is in relationship with someone in his courtroom and he's supposed to judge them, he needs to recuse himself because he's in relationship with them. Because to put someone in relationship with the law means that you're not connected to them personally, right? That's kind of what principles are. They're just truth that we don't have to ask anyone about because we know that they're true, which is very good and very helpful in times of immediate decisions. But if all we ever have are our principles, this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong, this is what you do in this situation, and you don't ever have to ask God to be enthroned in this moment, then it can kind of start to cause some problems. I've told this story before, but there's a lot of new faces, so I'm going to do it again. Uh, my oldest daughter is now eight, nine. Oh, my gosh. Um, she's older than she was when this happened. Uh, <laughs> When she was, she was two, she was, you know, she's the first child, so this is my practice child. Um, and she would bolt out of the house into the street. And we lived on a cul-de-sac, and there was no danger, but I was panicked because I thought she was going to get run over by the golf carts or something. And she would go out, and then I would grab her, and I really had to tell her. I'd stand her at the edge of the street, and I would say, I'd put her toes right on the edge of the sidewalk, and I'd point her towards the street, and I'd say, street, no, bad, no. And then I'd turn around and I'd show her the big backyard and I'd say, yes, good, play, wrong, right, life, death. Okay, and I would give her this principle and she needed it. She didn't, she didn't need some discourse on, you know, the neighborhood and the traffic speed and trying to understand the velocity of a car um, and the mass of her body. Wrong, right, life, death. Well, we moved into a new house um, a couple years later, and she was older now, and she was riding her scooter, and she got a brand new scooter, and she rode down to the edge of the driveway, and she wanted to go up the, the sidewalk, and we lived on a much busier street now. But she wouldn't go on the street because she literally got down to the edge, and she started crying. 
and she wanted to go ride her brand new scooter up, but she was so scared to get even close to the street that she couldn't ride her scooter. And I said, oh, Sophia. Um, so she was like turned around and she's scared and literally crying. And so I went and I took her and I said, okay. And I sat her down in the gutter and I made her put her feet in the street. And she was shaking and like yelling at me, no, no. I'm like, put your feet in the street. And I began to talk to her. I said, Sophia, you know, you like going to church? Yeah. You like going to ballet? Yeah. How do we get to ballet? In the car. Well, how do we drive the car on the road? Is the road bad? No. The road is actually really good, but you have to know how to operate the road. And I began to talk to her about the road and about her fear. And I said, when you were little, you didn't understand all of this stuff, but now you're a big girl and you understand that the road has cars, and as long as you stay out of the road, away from the cars, you're safe. So what was a principle that held her when she was a child was now a prison that was keeping her from maturing and enjoying the freedom of a life that's, that's progressing. And it isn't until she comes into a new kind of relationship with the street that she got to enjoy the maturity and the, and the play. And so if we don't mature from the place of a principle, as a child you get told some things, don't do this, it's death. And then God begins to show you why and what that's about. And you get to learn the expanse of what it's like to go and drive on the highway with Jesus. You know, you can just say, Jesus, take the wheel and everything will be fine. <laughs> that was dumb. <laughs> but this is getting to the point that, um, that there, we need both of these things, you all. And I just want to invite you. And I think that it's, that it's an important uh, invitation from the Father that we learn how to both honor our principles and also connect to his presence in any given situation. And that if you run into a moment when you're trying to cast out a demon from a child and nothing's happening, that you stop and ask Jesus, why didn't it work? Yeah. And maybe he says, well, why don't you tap into me right now and see what I'm saying and then use that. That was good. In any given situation, and I am not suggesting that you need to let go of your reason, that you need to let go of your rationality. You know, that would be the farthest thing from what I believe and value, but there is a primacy to that. Learning how to not just trust your own principles and thoughts, not just trust what, you were, that, what, what you've always believed about a thing, but to begin to ask the Lord, specifically in every moment, what are you doing, what are you saying, there is a deep temptation right now going on in our culture to just believe what you're being told, to just believe what you're reading, just to believe what you're seeing. Just believe, don't ask questions. And on the other side of that, if, if you're still in a principle-only worldview where you don't have a connection to the Father in His voice and you haven't learned how to have the enthroned judge, judgment from the Father, in your life, then you're gonna to go to the other side. Well, I don't believe anything. You know, I'm not gonna fall for this lie. I'm not gonna believe any of the mainstream media. I'm not gonna do any of this other stuff and I'm just gonna entrench myself on the other side of some ideas. And all that does is it divides and separates and keeps pushing people further and further apart into these deeply entrenched beliefs that it's either the right side or the left side. It's either the liberals or the conservative. It's either the Christians 
or the secular humanists. And we just keep living these divided, separated lives. And I just have such a passion right now for us to begin to understand what's going on inside of that. And it's the invitation to begin to say, just at the very basic core, God, what are you saying right now in this situation for this moment? And how do I learn how to not just try and cast out a demon by declaring that it's evil, but learn how to elevate the kingdom of heaven so that these things start disappearing? Because we need some of the darkness and the fear and the violence. Who wants the violence in our nation to stop? I mean, who wants that stuff to stop? Who wants it to stop in your life? Who wants it to stop in your city, in your neighborhood? The only way to get the violence on this earth to stop is to understand the value that heaven puts on any given thing. And we sang about it tonight, about the value of a child or the value of me. And Anne-Marie declared that with the worship team, you're worth it. Unless you understand that someone on the other aisle is worth something to God, you will always live in division. And maybe their ideas are encroaching on the Constitution. Maybe they're encroaching on your business and you don't want to have to keep paying those taxes. Maybe that's real. I'm sure that it is real. But until you see the value that heaven puts on someone or something, you don't have a solution. Who would like to understand the value of heaven for any situation that you're in? So ask. And don't get on the hamster wheel of just knowing that this person's wrong or this way's right. But here again is this conundrum. How do we do that without throwing out our convictions, right? Like, I'm not going to go and ask if it's okay, if God thinks it's okay to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to ask that question because I already know the answer. But I don't know the answer because it's a principle. I know the answer because I know what it's like to be in love with my wife. And God would never okay that because I know the depth of the love that's available inside of that marriage relationship. And so I believe that there's this really strong invitation here tonight um, that God, in any area of your life that you're struggling with that, or you've got, you've got judgment and anger and resentment that's building up for people that are encroaching on your, your value system or things in the, in the nation around you, like you're very concerned. Who's, who's really concerned? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, I feel like there's a lot of people that are very concerned about the direction some things are headed. And that that concern is a godly concern, I think. But the solution to it isn't anger, judgment, and resentment. The solution is, what does God say is valuable about this situation and then the other side? What does God say is valuable about this other side of this other perspective? Is there anything? Ask that question, tap into that. Because the kingdom of heaven is enthroned when the children of God sing a new song to him, when they honor and extol him, and then he begins to rebuke us, which is to elevate the value that he has for any given scenario to the level of what heaven says about a thing. And that you don't have to give up your principles and your positions to do that, but you may have to reorder them. You may have to first say, God, what are you saying? I know this is true from the scriptures, and I go and read it here. And let him show you.
And that invitation feels scary. Like as soon as I said it, I'm like qualifying it in my mind because I feel this like anxiety. I don't know if it's coming from you or if it's just me projecting. Um, there's this anxiety. How am I not going to get led astray? I'm not going to give up the truth of the Bible. Well, no, you don't have to give up the truth of the Bible to also ask God for his heart. And there's just an invitation to do that tonight. So if you guys would stand with me. So living God, we know that, that you are a fierce, consuming, reckless, sometimes irrational lover, and that you come and pursue us and open us up and I ask, Father, that you, would, that you would awaken inside of us a deeper willingness to, uh, to be rebuked by you. Father, that, that we would become a people that say, elevate inside of me, in my mind, in my heart, elevate inside of me the value that you have for a situation, a scenario, a person, a place. Father, that you would elevate in me to the level of what heaven says about a thing so that I could know how to operate on this earth. So that when I speak, it's my faith in action that moves a mountain. Because I'm speaking with the knowledge and the judgment and the authority of heaven, not my own small, unactivated ideas. And so we thank you, Jesus, that there are solutions to problems. And we thank you, Jesus, that you're coming in sovereign power to bring redemption and reconciliation to our nation and that you are coming with your heart with this fierce love that is piercing the darkness to open up the minds of our people to open up the minds of our nation to open up to open up the gates so that the king of glory would come into this country and that we would see the goodness of god in the land of the living we love you king jesus we believe you for this we bless you in your son's name amen